Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I am your host Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. This week my guest is Dr Jamie Pringle, an applied sports scientist who worked for English Institute of Sport supporting medal winning programs across three Olympic cycles and he was then involved in the creation of the Boardman Performance Centre. Jamie has 20 years of experience in advising cyclists and other endurance athletes and has coached riders to over 80 national titles and multiple British records. So let's crack on and hear what Jamie has to say. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jamie Pringle. Lovely to have you on, my friend. Great to see you, Simon. How have you been keeping over the last 18 months? It's, it's been a topsy-turvy time, hasn't it, for us all? It's been strange. Um, opportunity to ride the bike a bit more, which is probably the, one of the highlights. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a reset on life, really, I think, in the last 18 months and just different ways of working, which is, you know, it, it, everyone's had to do that. It's been interesting times. It, it, um, the pandemic must have come around the time when you were sort of moving down from moving on from the Boardman Centre as well, didn't it? So that would have been um, more more turmoil in your life. Yes. The, yeah, that project um, came to an end about uh, this time last year, sort of the start of, of uh, summer 2020. Yeah, so around that, that same time. Um, but that was a, it was a really good project and, and very satisfying and enjoyable to be involved with. Um, it's just a shame it came to an end. At that time, but you know, like I say, you know, lots of other people, um, I'm sure, in a whole host of different industries, um, you know, that it was a real, a real line in the sand, wasn't it? That we'll never see it again. I, I suspect. Yeah, and I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's. We're going to come and talk to the, talk about the Boardman Centre in in just a moment, but um, uh, I'd like to talk about your journey um, so that the listeners get a feel for why I really wanted to have you as a guest on here. Um, you and I have known each other for quite some time. You used to be our physiology guest when you were based in Loughborough at the university, but but working with um, English Institute of Sport. So let's talk to let's talk about your journey to that point. How did you end up at Loughborough? Um, how did you get into physiology? You know, what's your what's your whole background? Yeah, I was thinking actually, Simon, I think it's about 10 years ago since we first started working together. And as you say, I was at the English Institute of Sport at the time. Um, and I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. But I, I, when you asked me this question, I thought probably the best thing actually is almost work backwards through this. And the last five years, I've um, uh, been working my own sort of uh, consultancy, the Performance Science Distillery, which has largely been working with different national federations, but also commercial companies, um, professional sports and so on of which aspects like the Bourbon Performance Centre, but also um, Vortec, uh, Human Performance and Wattbike have been some of the ones I've done, which have been quite big projects in, in recent times. Um, and then before that, uh, I was with in the world-class sector for a decade from um, middle 2000s through to um, middle uh, sort of 2016, 17. Um, largely with the English Institute of Sport as a physiologist and a, as a researcher and um, uh, an applied practitioner but also with British Athletics as the head of science there around leading into the uh, Rio Olympics and Paralympics. And then a long time before that, actually. So in 2007, I moved to Loughborough. Um, but before that, I was at the University of Brighton as a university lecturer and a researcher. Um, and so I've, I've kind of sat on all sides of that science table, really, as, you mm. know, as a practitioner, as a researcher, and as an administrator and leader, but also as a coach as well, occasionally wear the coach hat. 
mm. with some of the, the riders uh, and athletes I've worked with. Being how how does that inform the way you coach? Being a scientist, because I, I mm. you know, because I remember one, when we were teaching one of those um, level three triathlon courses that you used to come and, and guest speak on, we we had a debate one day. We divided the group up because there was a, a, a probably a percentage, maybe fifty percent of the the aspiring coaches that came on had a sports science background, and and the others had more of a coaching background. So we had this rather provocative debate about where the coaching was um a black art or whether it was a science and of course the scientists said it was a science and the the coaches said it was a black art and often you can tell the scientists because they because of their data driven and all of that other stuff and you can tell the 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 coaches because they're more of the empathy and sort of like the subjective things um how do you find that's that's impacted your coaching that's a really good question. I think you've got to wear both hats, and I think it's beneficial to wear both hats at certain times. And what I mean by that, Simon, is that as a scientist, and I'd probably recognise myself as a scientist first, putting on the coaching hat and going, you know, using those skills and the craft of being a good coach, the empathy, the communication, you know, taking people and engaging with people, and, and you know, it's a relationship based on on trust fundamentally i think it, when you wear that hat i think it's it's i'm going to mix my metaphors but i think it lets you see the world through that that lens and actually makes you a better scientist um and i think probably the other way around as well i think you know the, some really good coaches are able to put on that scientific method hat you know and actually look at things in a mm. in that systematic and, and uh and logical science scientific kind of way and I think that's useful. Um, so wearing both hats would be the, the my recommendation. I'm just sitting on a fence there in terms of answering your question, but I think it's actually true. I think you have mm. to sit on that fence and see it from both perspectives. Do you, as a, personally, then, did you find it difficult to um, sort of leave the science, the black and almost binary type of um, approach to science, and and sort of uh, become more empathetic, or is that something that you have as a person here? Because I know that some people aren't naturally empathetic, and if and if you do rely on the, the black or white approach, that might it might be difficult to wear both hats. Mm, I don't I don't know. I wouldn't say necessarily find it difficult. I think I think um, you know in the, in the example in sports science, often you'll see coaches and athletes are asking the questions in terms of the, the relevant questions, the most important questions, mm. because it's what you do. And as a scientist, you're often picking up on those because those are the research questions that are going to be the ones that will need to be asked and answered um, within that by scientific method. To, but fundamentally, almost always, the coach is going to be a few steps ahead of the scientist mm. because they're, and the athlete is going to be the one who's living it. And so if you can get a handle on that and you can see that and you can form that relationship with good coaches and their athletes, um, then as a scientist, that would, would be what I'm looking to do. The most important thing I can do as a sports scientist is stand alongside a coach and an athlete and watch what they do and learn from it. You know, that's where I'm going to find where the questions are. I might then be able to go and provide some decent answers for that and help them understand what they're doing. But the question is going to come from something you see in real life. It's an interesting point, isn't it, that that um, the coaches are a few steps ahead of the scientists because I know that particularly there's a lot of athletes now, particularly age group athletes will look at what the science says and, and they use that to help them decide, well, am I going to choose this approach or that approach? And actually, if you try to explain to them, well, 
there's a lot of this stuff that coaches were doing years before science picked up on it. And then the scientists looked at it and thought, well, that seems to be quite successful. Let's have a look at why it's successful. And that, that was one of the key learnings I've, I've sort of made a point on the other day about what I've, what I've discovered from interviewing several, you know, dozens of, of scientists and coaches like yourself is that you have to find what works for you. And I think that's what, that's what those coaches, you know, the Arthur Lydiards and, and, mm-hmm. um, Zatopek and all those guys, they found something that worked for them. And then the scientists went and had a look and thought, well, hold on a minute. This seems to be working for lots of people. Let's find out what it is that's making it work. Steven Seiler as well, looked, you know, his whole polarized research was done on analyzing all of those training diaries, wasn't it? And then th- that whole formula was come upon. And now people look at the science and say, I'm going to go with 80-20 because that seems to work. Yeah. And I think, you know, so I, probably of all those examples, it's just a lesson in open-mindedness. You know, you, you don't necessarily, you need to see things through other people's experiences and other, other people's ways of looking at it. And, you know, walk walk a mile in another person's shoes. Uh, and even in the science world, you know, you'll see uh, in the sports science world, sport science world, that you will see some really big inputs that come from completely different industries. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see things about human physiology and human uh, physicality that will probably start that in across uh, in the medical domain mm. um, you know, about, about human function. Um, I was reading a paper yesterday around the importance of a, of a certain um, uh, signaling pathway, an ion pathway in, in, your vasc- uh, in your capillaries that responds to stretch and shear. And actually, it looks like it's one of these things. It's like the, the switch that will switch on a lot of adaptation. Well, mm. that work is being done in basically, you know, vascular health, you know, people who have got poor um, uh, vascularization, high blood pressure and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we can see stuff there. You go, you know what, there's something really important in there that we can pull into the sport world. The sport world's quite small in comparison to, to that mm-hmm. bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just an open-mindedness and being able to, you know, look at things from, from those different starting points or different, different lenses at least. The other thing I found interesting, you've probably come across Alison Rose, haven't you, the physio who was who was based at Pilates. And I remember Alison telling me about some tr- treatment methods that she was using that they'd use with elite athletes. And, and I said, this, you know, this is totally against most of the common methodology that physios use. And she said, well, well, actually, you'll, you will find that most of the elite physios that are working at the very highest end are, are using some quite experimental stuff that they, they are. They do have that open mindedness. And it takes four or five years before it gets researched and then filtered down to the mainstream. And so I'm um, one of the other physios that I work with up there, Lu- Louisa Holmes, um, was sort of doing some visceral massage on my gut because she said that my my bladder was tethered to my liver, right? Because it had got stuck because I'd fallen off my bike and it was like two pieces of meat impacting and they got stuck together. And somebody that had been a GP said, this is absolute nonsense. I've never heard anything so ridiculous. It's hocus pocus, you know, this. And Louisa shared all the data and research. And she said, well, I've never seen that. But of course, Louisa was at the cutting edge and the GP was perhaps in that mainstream where that wouldn't have filtered down to her for a few years. And so um, I think often some of the leading coaches are finding out that stuff as well, aren't they? And it doesn't filter down to the majority of coaches um, for a few years. So the re- the research is a bit behind what the cutting edge practice is. Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know about that particular example, but you know, the, all good science starts with good observation, you know, and that's where you're, you're, and it's, and the good observation starts with being open-minded, you know, taking a look at what you're looking at and not just seeing it in a, you know, in a, in a defined or traditional or, um, you know, a prejudiced way. 
Um, and a good example, you know, around sort of one of one of the reflections I had, certainly when I was working with the English Institute of Sport, where you're working across a multitude of sports, mm-hmm. is that the that, that traditional delineation of sports science disciplines, physiology, biomechanics, psychology, just doesn't cut it. You know, ah. performance and performers, they're complicated, they're intertwined. And looking at stuff in isolation doesn't quite work. Sometimes it works when you want to go deep into it and understand it more. But fundamentally, for most of the time, you're dealing with a performer where this is just part of the mix of, of what makes up their, them and their performance. Mm. And um, we, we you, that, and that why I mentioned that is because if you looked at it in that isolated way, you would lose the quality, the content of what you're looking at quite quickly mm. um, because you wouldn't see the context of how it all fits together. Uh, and you wouldn't see the most importantly the, the context and the, and the real lifeness of how actually something you know the information you're dealing with and that performer how they go about their their daily life um, and a good example to that side probably is is training and the adaptation to training which is fundamentally what we're here for as, as, as sports performers you know if you think what we can do in training in terms of going and doing the session and then how you adapt to it afterwards that adaptation timeline in the the, the hours days and the weeks afterwards will all be affected by behavioral things will all be affected by psychological things will be affected by your stress and strain of your home life your sleep quality of what you're eating they'll all mediate a physical response and so to just try and pull out one of those things after that that um that mix you're going to miss quite a few of the other aspects of it um so that's a long way of saying it. it is actually quite complicated but most importantly we, we've got to make sure we're looking at it in the right way uh, and we're not just trying to, you know, pigeonhole stuff into into disciplines or, or categories. I, I uh, I've had Doctor Dan Plews. I don't. Were you at Loughborough when Dan was there? I know Dan. Yes, I, I know. I don't yeah. really remember him personally, but yes, I know who you mean. He's good. Uh, yeah, and Dan Dan's been on the show a few times, and he's uh, you know he's making his own way in the the sports coaching and physiology world, isn't he? And, and doing some good stuff. But he he uses that phrase, and I, I think Paul Professor Paul Larson, who's a, who they was collaborating with Dan. I think I think both of them are claiming uh, ownership of this phrase. But context before content. Um, yes, like would, it. would summarize like it. what you've just said there, wouldn't it? Is is you, yeah. you you've got to have everything in context, and and that's that's the that's the thing that I find when when we run these um, tutor courses for coaches is that when they'll say, well, what should we do in this circumstance? And you or I or um, Malcolm Brown might say, well, it depends, and people go, well, I know, I just want an answer. <laughs> well, it depends because it depends on the context of the uh, the question. Yeah, and it gets to a point, you know, that you're, we're always looking for answers to things, but actually it's the principles that guide those mm. question setting and those answers that are actually where the richness of the real, you know, understanding comes from, where wisdom comes that comes from, I think. Um, you asked me before, before we started um, this, this chat now, of, you know, some of the key things around some of the key messages. And one of them is that simplification. You know, we're looking, you know, I think I've gone full circle in my career where you're looking for detail to understand detail, but when you go round the circle, dare I say, many times because you never complete it actually one of the driving forces is to, to try and simplify and reduce it you know and, and actually just take principles up from it that really just drive how we can understand things uh, and potentially drive how you can help uh, other people understand what they do simplification and reducing because the temptation is to make it busy the temptation is to throw detail into it because it feels like it's science you know but it's not it's you know good science is about simplifying and most importantly, asking questions that you know you can answer with confidence, and I think that's where we, that's where I'd hope we can we can get to with this. 
There's there's a couple more things that come to mind from previous guests. So you'll be aware of uh, you know Chris Jones, the uh, endurance coach. Chris was coaching an athlete that I was working with, um, Dan Brook, who you'll also remember. And Dan mm. went down to Swansea, and Chris gave Dan his program, and it was basically. Um, a sheet of paper with some scribbles on it. It's like Monday, run easy, ride easy, uh, swim easy. Tuesday, um, in the in the uh, in the lab with Bernie, the sports scientist, to do this session. Bernie will give you the detail when you get there. Um, swim easy, don't turn up tired. You know, another message we hear <laughs> from Malcolm Brown. Uh, it was so simple, and and Dan Dan looked at it and he said, "That's what Chris has given me," and he pinned it to the wall because he was just uh, he was blown away by the simplicity of it. Um, when what he'd been used to from other coaches was this whole manual yeah. of training sessions that took a week to read. And uh, yeah. yeah, I, I think, simple. again, another reflection for me of working with world-class athletes, and it's an absolute privilege to work with world-class athletes, but, you know, they is that simplicity that most of the time they're doing most of the things that they know will work most of the time for them. Yeah. And their self-management of that, that athletic self-awareness, is, and it's a phrase I've used quite a few times, uh, it's, it's a physical self-awareness, but also an emotional self-awareness. It's that awareness of, of yourself as a performer, but as a trainer and you know, in your recovery from training. And I think that, for me, is the most critical thing that you'll see that will define whether an athlete has, has the goods to make it or not. When you see that sort of athletic self-awareness in a young athlete, um, do you know that you've got, you know, you've got some, yes, talent. Yes, of course, you've got to have talent. Mm. But that ability to know yourself in that way, I think, is a real indicator of you've got someone who will go a long way. Well, you and I have both seen athletes that are talented that haven't made it, probably because they didn't have that self-awareness or emotional intelligence and others that perhaps didn't show the talent to start with, but had that intelligence and understood the long-term approach rather than being a champion tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and it, it breaks your heart to see those that could have made it that 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 don't, but not because of willingness to try, almost an over eagerness, in fact. And it just it just unravels. And if at a crucial point, if you get injured and you miss six months, you get left behind, don't you? You do, and you know it's our responsibility as as professionals working in this sector, I think, uh, to build systems that allow the athlete to to thrive and to achieve their ambitions, achieve their goals. And to not crack, you know, that's a key thing. You know, we, we're not just kind of, it's not just a question of throwing more at it and seeing who, who makes it. We want to build a system and an environment and a culture uh, where, you know, they feel that they've, everyone's got a chance to achieve their goals. And I think, you know, if, I'm, if I was defining what sports science is, it's letting people make better decisions from good information. Mm. That's like letting the coach make better coaching decisions, letting the athlete make better decisions for themselves. Um, and that's really our responsibility to that, to build that system that lets that happen. Um, it's not easy, of course, but, you know, that's if you think in reflection of the last um, four or five Olympic cycles of how the British world-class system has been built up, those, those were some of the, 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 the origins, some of the roots of that. Uh, and, they're, uh, and they're thriving now. Um, some of them have had to be, you know, some, some changes have happened in the last few years, which have changed mm. direction as well. But, um, you know, they really th- were thriving, um, particularly around, of course, you know, London 2012, which was probably the real pinnacle of a lot of uh, British performance. And then we'll see that again, certainly not in my lifetime. Just just going back to that um, athletic awareness, I, um, you know, doing the boring stuff, if you like, um, I think 
one thing that I've noticed over the last few years is that social media has caused an explosion in people wanting to post those hero sessions, you know, the remarkable session that they do when they, whether it's CrossFit or running, you know, you, you're absolutely wasted. It's you've done 40, the, the Zatapec 4400s and it goes up there. But what we ignore is the fact that what, what the foundation for all that, of that is just that 60 minute steady run at a talking pace, you know, five days a week. And um, of course, that isn't the sort of thing you can post on Instagram and get lots of thumbs up for. But that's the athletic <laughs> awareness you need to know that those that, that that's it's like the boring bricks that go in the wall, isn't it? You just need to build a big, strong wall of boring bricks. Yeah, 100 percent. I was thinking um, when knowing you were going to ask me around this area, I was thinking one of my key reflections, probably one of my satisfying moments, actually. And it's nearly 10 years old because it's, it's London 2012. Was seeing. I was working with um, British canoeing and their both their slalom and their sprint squad, and mm-hmm. the, the slalom paddlers Etienne uh, Stott and Tim Bailey, who won the C two gold, the canoe mm-hmm. two man gold. Those guys weren't on the radar as you know they weren't the the big headline acts um, that were going into that that event, but they won gold and they delivered a really strong, almost perfect performance. Um, but they've been doing that for the years leading into that practicing and practicing and practicing and looking at every component part of their performance but most importantly you know pulling the big levers as you use the phrase of getting the the big things right um and they were off the radar and that was a nice way for them to come into that event and they won golden and it was incredibly satisfying to see that um they did you know the hard yards in the cold and they breaking the ice at home pierpont up in nottingham to get the boat in the water to do their sessions um yeah you don't see that on instagram but that's where that's where you know the world class really comes into it. On on that note, I was privileged to listen to Jörg Gotts do a fantastic presentation. I don't know if you've seen this one. It, yeah. It's like his key presentation where he's in the classroom and he puts all of these slalom poles up, and then he's got there's like thirty of them, and then he's got thirty points, and those are his journey through life. But he's also as he's going through his journey through life and his life lessons, he's also talking about this Olympic slalom and through this gate here. This is an upstream gate, so they've got they've got to paddle against the current and then do this in here. Yes. And it's about you know you've got to you've got to adjust and avoid, and of course that's life. And then he goes on. It's just just a brilliant speech how he's molded the two together. Together. fantastic coach and a fantastic coach developer and a, a top top guy really is mm. saved my life actually one time that's another story but um I, I nearly got swept downstream in augsburg in germany uh having gone for a swim in this slalom course which you're not quite meant allowed to do but we all went for a <laughs> swim and uh he was the one standing at the bottom of the i was absolutely exhausted and he was the one standing at the bottom of the course who plucked me out of the water and in his swiss german accent he said jamie take my hand <laughs> i was so glad otherwise i would have been probably drifting somewhere towards um somewhere towards the uh, i don't i don't deepest darkest germany <laughs> All right, so you've given us a great insight there to some of your key learnings from your time at EAS and, and that, that sort of um, kayak slalom story. Um, you, um, when, did, when did you leave EAS then? And you, I think you went to the Bournemouth Performance Centre after that, didn't you? Um, I had a time at British Athletics in the lead-in okay. to um, uh, Rio 2016. So I was head of science there for um, the end of that Olympic cycle, which was it's a fantastic sport to work in, as you know, athletics well huge huge sport you know multiple different disciplines and events within those so it's a really uh, incredibly broad uh, sport but a real privilege to work with that that group at that time mm. okay 
So British Athletics, then onto the Boardman for Performance Centre. I'm keen to hear about this, yep. this place. I've seen it. It looks fabulous. It's such a shame now that it's empty and uh, unless unless somebody's taking the uh, taking it up and running it commercially. Well, watch watch that space is all I'll say on on, on that one. Um, yeah. So the Boardman Performance Centre, which I'm sure some of your um, your listeners and viewers will be aware of, was really Chris Boardman's vision to take what he'd experienced in terms of science and medicine and technical engineering and innovation and, and so on. And what he'd experienced as an athlete and largely actually generated a lot of that, um, that momentum in himself with, with his coach, with Peter Keane, um, and also what he'd, he'd um, created at British Cycling. And his vision was to take that and make it available to the general public, to all levels of, of performers. And, and he entrusted myself and a couple of others with that vision to make that happen, which was a, a real privilege to get involved with. Um, we had a really nice centre down in Evesham, we basically had a box, a really nice, a really nice centre, a building with a wind tunnel in it, and then we put into that all the aspects around sports science and sports medicine to go in and around that. Um, and it was it was great fun. And I think probably my biggest reflection of that project was it was about taking scientific service provision that was once the domain of world class athletes and probably only within reach of world if you're in a world class sector or professional sport. And making it into something that the general public could understand and enjoy and engage with uh, and, and make it into an experience as well. It's not just a service. It's an experience. It's having a really good fun time when you're doing that kind of work because you're, you know, you're, you're, um, you're helping something that's going to help your ambitions. Mm. Um, and I think, and it also, in reflection of that, Simon, and I wanted to just um, make this point because it kind of comes back to what we were talking about before about being a good scientist, being a good coach. Being a good practitioner as a sports science practitioner or sports medicine, sports engineering practitioner, when we were, we were recruiting for that, the staff for that, um, we were really looking for three kind of things and it was quite hard to find. We were looking for people who knew their stuff, you know, they knew their technical um, know-how. We wanted people who really understood performance and cycling and triathlon and had a really good empathy for that and what it took to be a sports performer or performer. But most importantly, we needed people who were really good with people, terrific people person, <laughs> you know, who and, and getting all three of those things, it was actually quite tricky um, because the, it's a rare breed when you can get all three of those at the highest level. Mm. And it just made me in reflection. I think that's probably the most satisfying bit was how we created a, a practitioner team there who had those characteristics um, and some terrific individuals who have gone on um, to some bigger and better things as well. Mm. So it's mostly mostly triathletes and the cycling part of triathlon and cyclists that you were involved with, yeah? Yes, yes. Um, but across all levels from world-class Olympic world champions all the way down to complete beginners and the whole smorgasbord in between. It was, it was mm. great fun. Very satisfying to have that breadth of um, people that you're working with. Well, you, I don't know if you're aware that the majority of my listeners are, are engaged in triathlon in, in some form or another. And uh, as a part of that, there'll be a lot of them that are, are involved in cycling events as well, whether they're sportives or time trials or maybe gravel riding now. Um, it's becoming yeah. more popular over the last couple of years. And triathletes particularly, and, and I suppose cyclists are really interested in gear, aren't they, in kit? You know? um, we, we, we 
take the mick a little bit out of the triathletes who've got all the gear but no idea but actually we should be grateful to them because without them the cycling industry would be on its knees um you know they're the ones who open the checkbook or they get their amex card out and buy the new set of zip wheels or that sort of five grand frame so um we we should be we should be more mindful of those uh, those individuals really because it's it's what also what keeps you and i in business as well isn't it the fact that they're after those extra seconds um but questions i always get asked is how can i go faster on the bike so we'll talk about physiology in a little bit um from your time at the boardman center and particularly looking at aerodynamics uh if we were going to want to get the best return on our investment which is always a sensible idea what are the key um changes that we should be looking at making to enable Mm. that to happen well, the first step, the first thing is you've got to make a step towards it. You know, um, a lot that you will find a lot of athletes will consciously ignore it because it's it always feels too hard, too intimidating, maybe even too expensive. Um, and so, actually, making a step towards that area is is the first thing to do. One of the things we were doing with um, the previous project there was trying to make that accessible at a price point that was realistic for most people, because typically it's you know the domain of the Formula One wind tunnel, um, you know, which is mm-hmm. always going to cost you a, a lot of money. So we were looking to bring that at a much more realistic, achievable price point. Um, I think to answer your question specifically is you know the, and. Well, actually, I will answer your question in a second, but the other thing that's worth saying is the first steps that you take into that will be the biggest steps that you'll take. Um, you'll get some quick gains if you focus on the right things at the right time, which will come on to us in a second. And of course, the more and more you keep pushing into that area, the, the less and less will come. I don't think we've seen the top. We don't think we found the top of the tree yet. It's worth pointing that out. You know, there's still a lot in the aerodynamics world um, that is yet to be learned. Mm. Um, focus on the things that matter the most, and it's your body that is, you know, the vast majority of what we can deal with here. Um, yes, you can spend your money and get your Amex card out and spend on a nice pair of new um, shiny wheels, but in relation to the, that, putting that money into you, your shape on a bike, how you're sitting on a bike then that's where the biggest uh, gains will be found because that's the biggest part of the equation that's movable, that's changeable. Um, I think it's also worth saying that, you know, what looks fast isn't always fast. Mm. Uh, you do have to, that's why I say about you need to make a step towards this by actually getting there and taking some sort of measurements of it, you, either in the wind tunnel or on the track or on the road, whatever it might be. Um, because what looks fast isn't always fast. Sometimes it is, but not always. And but then that said, if you see if you know someone is a fast rider and you think how are they sitting on the bike, it's worth observing, just seeing what they're doing. Um, but you can't copy them, but you can learn from them. Um, and then the final thing there, really, and probably this is the most important bit. If you say what are the top changes to make, well, it, yes, you'll be able to change aspects around body position and some of your kit and your clothing and so on. But you have to combine this with the realism of taking this out onto the open road or onto the track wherever you're going to perform. Because it's about also being powerful and comfortable and stable and robust under fatigue and under pressure. Mm. And some of the things that you think might be, oh, this looks really super quick. I get myself really narrow and tight. Uh, You might not be able to just deliver that on the open road. So there's a degree of realism that we're always looking for. That's how we drive the wind tunnel sessions that we do with athletes, where we can try and combine aspects around the physical ergonomics with the aerodynamics as well. So here's, here's a debate that I saw springing up on Twitter recently and it was um, Brett Sutton was trying to demolish the praying mantis position, the sort of elbows up and the arms 
the hands quite high and the head hidden behind all that on the basis that it was too narrow. It put too much pressure on the shoulders. Um, most, most athletes that were adopting it um, weren't strong enough or mobile enough around the upper back, and the shoulders and the neck to sustain that for a long period of time. And what it did was build tension that then stayed in your shoulders, which then affected um, and cascaded down to your lower back during the run. And what he was saying was, it's all very well looking at a top time trialist or one of the pro tour riders in this position, but they're just cyclists. They don't have to get off and run. And again, you need to, context comes back, doesn't it? You need to think of the big picture. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the prey and mantis position and, and also on then on Brett Sutton's argument that it's, it's a waste of time for most triathletes? Um, he's got a point. There are aspects of that around, you know, it's not just about being on a bike and delivering a, you know, a four minute pursuit or a, a 20 minute, 10 mile time trial. Um, so that, that is a, that is a valid point for sure. Um, you know, we have to think bigger context, bigger picture. Um, but going back to my earlier point around, you know, when you're working with a, a, a rider to try and explore their most aerodynamic, but also their most powerful positions, then then we can work with both of those. And actually, I would say some of those aspects of that position, particularly some of the aspects around the elbow and the upper arm, can be more relaxing than they are strain, straining um, mm. because of the nature of the position. Now, very high hands is one thing. It doesn't always work. Um, you know, it's, it's not just about where the hands are and where the forearms are. It's about the flow of air over the whole system. Of course, mm. it largely starts with the front of the bike and what your hands are doing. Um, so... You know some of the, some of the some of the points that you've raised. Probably, you know, I think we can be more clever than that. I think we can find solutions that will work and are mm. powerful and are comfortable and are aerodynamic. Um, to put some stats on it, I'd probably say uh, probably quite a high proportion, maybe two thirds to three quarters of the riders that we work with, raising the hands slightly from a flat forearm to a slightly raised forearm. I would say probably two thirds to three quarters, you're likely to see that that is beneficial. Mm. Um, but the other point of that, Simon, is it's not, there's no single answer. There's a range of solutions. It depends you know, again. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but this is a really important point because it's a good thing that as a rider, I've got a range of solutions I know I can work within mm. where I, can, I know I can deliver my performance. And so if for you get an hour into your Ironman triathlon bike leg and you start to feel a bit of, t- you know, that tension from the swim is really starting to get your shoulders uh, and your upper back and your lower back, then you might have a m- movement you can make on the bike knowing that that actually still is within your range of solutions and it's not compromising. So trying to find a single best solution isn't the concept we, we would work with. It's trying to find a range that work, mm. a range that work aerodynamically and work biomechanically. Louisa Holmes, the physio, she, does some bike, uh, which does a lot of bike fits in leads. And the first thing she does is assess the human, look at their flexibility and mobility around exactly. the hamstrings, the hips, the upper back, the neck, the way they breathe. You know, that having the elbows too close together might be more dynamic, but if it's restricting your breathing, then that's not going to help, particularly if you're going hard. Um, if yeah. you can get into a great position, but you can't keep your head up or you can't look. I know one or two guys have got quite deep eye sockets. Their eyebrows get in the way, so they can't <laughs> see. And that's if you can't see where you're going, then the most aerodynamic position is not going to help if you're buried in the back of a, a parked car. Yeah, very um, true, very true. But, but uh, one of the points that she's always keen to emphasize is this is the start point for your bike fit. 
we've got you an aerodynamic position. Now what you have to do is work at it. You've got to spend time riding in that position. You've got to spend time riding in that position at your race pace. You've also got to spend a lot of time working on your mobility so you're comfortable in that position for the duration of your ride because there's nothing more frustrating for me and probably for you is to see somebody that has a great bike position but then is unable to hold it and they're sitting up on the the bull bars and of course that they've got that big chest and shoulders in the way and they're not they're not getting any benefits they might just be riding a road bike yeah no and you're exactly right and the you know the example you've given is exactly, is exactly right everyone is a you know the human being no one is symmetrical everyone has bits of their musculoskeletal function uh, and cardiovascular cardiorespiratory function that will be potentially a little bit quirky and everyone's bringing in a history with them and history that's informed by the context of what they want to go and achieve. And so that's where you've got to start. You know, you, you can't just try and fold somebody up into a, you know, a, a small little package and make them pointy and hope that that's going to be fast. It just doesn't work like that. Um, we similarly have excellent physiotherapists who drive our bike fitting, who know how the body works. They know how stuff is, you know, the hip bones connected to the thigh bone <laughs> and, um, they know how it all, it all comes together. Um, and that's the key thing, you know, you're trying to, you're dealing with the, the whole body, uh, human performer, and you're also dealing with behaviors as well. You know, there's aspects there around the tactical behaviors of, of, of knowing you have a solution you can deliver that we've talked about. And when and how to deliver that at certain points mm. in the race, be it up a hill, down a hill, into a headwind tail, and there's all those other um, technical bits that we we could talk about. Mm. Interesting that in when you were talking about the changes you can make, you were talking about the body. You didn't you didn't once there mention the new zip wheels or any other make um, <laughs> the the aerodynamic bike. And I, I guess the point is that before you start investing lots of money in kit, you need to invest as much as you can in yourself. So for me, you know, um, spend spend 20 minutes every morning and every evening doing your yoga or movement practice to get more mobile. Um, spend spend some time doing your strength and conditioning so you've got stability around the key joints. Um, maybe lose a little bit of weight so you're not sort of quite as a larger frame. Um, those are all free. And get yourself tested and see how um, what impact that's made on your performance. And after that, start looking at the kit. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you say get tested. Well, every session that you do is an opportunity to learn, you know, every session that you, if you, if you're measuring stuff in the, in the right way and in an enjoyable way, not just because you want you need to measure it, but you're learning about yourself, about how, how you can deliver what you do and how your body works to achieve it. Um, but you're dead right. And, you know, we deal, if, if you came in to do a session in the wind tunnel with us at Vortec now, we'd work in this order. We'd look at body, uh, position and posture first. And then we'd look at the, the helmet and clothing second. And then we'd look at equipment and probably work from the front end of the bike backwards. Mm. And then we'd look at other things like wheels. So those, those expensive things, wheels and frames at the end there, you can spend an awful lot of money on those as a cyclist, as a triathlete, but they're actually of less importance. And, and one of the reasons is a real just straightforward reason of, of that if you're buying kit in that area, it's all pretty good. You know, you know, yes, there are differences between top level disc wheels and deep rim wheels, but they're all pretty good. So trying to differentiate that, you can spend a heck of a lot of money trying to get something that's just a little bit better. Whereas actually take that money, take that time, take that effort 
and invested in, in in the time spent of learning how to sit on the bike and get the posture right and get your your back shape right and all those kind of things. You, you've just disappointed a lot of cyclists and triathletes, of course, <laughs> who love who love to buy a new kit because, of course, that's another one of those things you can put on Instagram, isn't it, to show your mates my bike looks sexy now because it's got these eight hundred mil um, or eighty mil rims. But actually, I'm doing a race where there's some heavy crosswinds, and so can I keep the bike stable when I'm going downhill at fifty miles an hour with the, a wind buffeting me? I would never dismiss the power of the the old adage of um, how many bikes you need. It's n plus one. I think that still applies. <laughs> Certainly does in my garage. Yeah, well, me me too. Yes, me too. But I I am always, and I, of course we're we're making fun again of that. But and I suppose I until I learned better from people like yourselves, I probably would have gone for the uh, for the shiny new wheels first. Um, <laughs> but body body first, then bike. Absolutely, hundred percent. Well, you, you mentioned Vortec then, so um, and you've mentioned that the uh, the Boardman Centre unfortunately closed down, so you've uh, started doing some work at Vortec. So what, what are you doing there currently? Yeah, Vortec is the company that was um, started in uh, another company called Total Sim, which is a Formula One aerodynamics company, not just Formula One, but anywhere where aerodynamics and speed and, and, and so on efficiency is important. And Vortec is the uh, the spin-off company of that that was largely designed to uh, set up to design and, and manufacture clothing, so skin suits and uh, bits of equipment as well. Um, and within that, what we have done is taken some of the concepts and the operation that we had over the Bourbon Performance Centre and, and moved that over to Vortec to join forces with those guys because they are absolutely world-leading in understanding aerodynamics. They, they mm-hmm. truly are. Um, so we moved some of the staff, as I say, some of the equipment, some of the concepts over, uh, and we've in the last few months been setting up the the human performance side of of, of that operation. Um, right now, that company Vortec is, is is largely focusing on delivering for the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics mm-hmm. because we're working with a variety of nations. Um, can't tell you which ones, but um, quite a lot of nations in supplying their clothing and their equipment. Right. Um, so it's been a real push in the last six months, particularly in the last three months, to get to get everything ready for Tokyo, which obviously is only a handful of weeks away as we speak now. Are we going to see any protests, though, over the size of the dimples this time um, <laughs> when teams turn up on the track? Yeah, well, a lot of them will be using it, I can tell you that. Um, I don't know, actually, to be fair. No, I mean, it's, it is all, all about playing within the rules. And, you know, sometimes the rules are set in response to some innovations. But uh, it's about finding, you know, it's about, not. It's, I was going to say it's about pushing the limits. That's not really, it's about understanding where the rules are making sure you're complying with the rules, but you're being innovative and you're really, you know, you're thinking in different ways um, to to get that innovation, to get that competitive edge. I remember um, that whole point about working within the rules coming up a couple of times in the past. One was when I spent, was lucky enough to spend a few days on a cycling tour with Shane Sutton and Dave Brailsford just before, I think it was 2005, and they were talking about Team Sky and the blue line down the middle was supposed to depict the, the line that you were going to go up to and go across. Now, you know, what's gone in the last few months probably means we shouldn't talk about that so much, but I also talked about talked with um, a gentleman who was a uh, one of the leading figures at um, one of the big four accountancy firms, and he talked about that in business as well, about there's a line. If you step across it, it means you're probably being um, you're breaking the law or you're being immoral or unethical. But if the if the opposition or your competitive companies are willing to step up to that line, you ne- you need to be able to step up to that line as well and not stand back from it to get the maximum from what you can get. Um, 
I, I, I seem to remember that once at Loughborough, we were talking about your work at EIS and some of the things that you were doing. You were using a machine which helped to build eccentric strength. And I remember you talking yeah. about it with the marathon runners helping to helping to build stiffness um, around the ankles and knees and hips so that they didn't lose power as they were running fast. Um, and innovations like that, which perhaps a lot of people don't think of, but are... Um, you know. Yeah, well, uh, any innovation in the training space will always have uh, a lot of traction. You know, uh, it will always get a lot of um, a lot of thought and attention because you know fundamentally we're dealing, dealing there with a human being, and there are limitations with mm. you know the ultimately limitations about how much you can get out of the human body. If we're dealing with you know what we we're talking about before about um, trying to innovate with clothing and aerodynamics and equipment, then then that really is a, a much broader. <laughs> Um, limits, you know, because I don't think we've found the edge of that yet. No, mm. definitely haven't. Um, but with a human performer, uh, when you're dealing with physical adaptation, it's clear where the limits are. And it's, you know, you have a, a smaller window to work in. Yes, you're trying to move that window progressively, make either make it wider or move it closer to the ultimate. But, um, you know, that example about eccentric training was a, a line of work that probably started around 2010, to look at specifically using eccentric stress for a variety of purposes, but often you know around running economy and preservation of good running economy and good technique under fatigue. Mm. Yeah, I guess then if you are well, go and run down hills, that helps. Mm. Well, that we've helps. we've talked about that before, and um, that was one of the things that was most noticeable about Alistair and Jonathan Brownlee when they first came to triathlon. Was I think Ali Brownlee in two thousand eight in Beijing? There was a there was a significant downhill section on the run. And he took the lead, didn't he, for the first few K when he came to people's, the wider population's knowledge. And and then he was leading because on that downhill, he just let go like he used to do on the fells. And of yeah. course, most most of those triathletes actually are, probably still aren't, but they're not very good at running downhill fast and just letting go and relaxing. And that stiffness that he had and the ability to sort of almost like that plyometric uh, stretch reflex type um, thing to enhance his running was was natural to him because you learn that if you want to be um you know as you're developing as a fell runner um and it uh, yeah all about running downhill fast well it is but i think i think probably the broader principle is it's variation you know it's variation of, of training stimulus in this case but also variation of what you're able to do and you know what your, your capabilities let you do run up hills run down hills you know do other sports whatever it might be I, mm. and a variation is invariably good um mm. as a certainly in terms of an input level you know if you can vary the input to achieve the same output and there are multiple may, ways of achieving that output that goal um and that's one important thing way to look at training there is no this training does that this training does loads of stuff and to achieve that there are loads of stuff you can do so variation i think is a key principle there um and that you will see there's absolutely good evidence in the training adapta adaptation space. Stephen Siler, you've mentioned previously, Billy uh, Spielick and people like that have looked at variation being a key moderator of adaptation. Um, and basically more, more variation is better, simple as. Mm. Yeah. And I'd even go so far as to, to say that, you know, particularly for the majority of people who are listening to this, who are not professionals, but, but they are keen on triathlon is to not limit yourself with um, sagittal plane work like swimming and cycling and running in the same direction because you then you don't have that variety although you have three sports you you don't have that variety of movement you don't have that variety of, of sort of developing power from from different angles so there's there's, there's 
the, the the sort of variation of stresses on the bones and the joints isn't the same. So try some multi-directional stuff if you're in your off season. Try some rock climbing. Try kayaking. Mm. Go to go to if if you want to learn to be a better swimmer, go to the pool and play water polo. You'll get a whole load of different skills there, and you'll certainly improve your fitness. You might get dunked a few times. Um, <laughs> character Controversial. Experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think also, but, you know, I'd also take a physiological systems approach to this because I would, because that's what I do for a living. But, you know, if you're thinking about, and I'll give you an example, which actually pushes this out quite far, is that you, you know, musculoskeletal adaptation is different from cardiovascular adaptation. Mm. And the heart, the cardiovascular system, doesn't really mind where the stimulus is coming from. So yeah. long as it's loading the, the heart in a sustained way, in the right way, in a sustained way for long enough and, and often enough. Um, and my example I was going to give you is it was something I mentioned about canoeing, kayaking before. Um, some of the best examples I've seen of this is where kayakers would actually spend a winter cross-country skiing, um, you know, actually not in a boat but actually going and developing cardiovascular um, capability and capacity by doing a modality cross-country skiing, which we know is incredibly efficient, incredibly um, effective mm. at getting cardiovascular remodeling because it's such a whole body exercise mm -hmm. that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get by doing um, what effectively could be quite isolated upper body work as a, as a slalom canoeist, for example. Yes. Um, so you're just taking that example, you're just taking that particular scenario and saying, well, what's the best way to get the adaptation? It's probably this. Mm. Part of the reasoning for that with also with the cross-country skiing was some of the lakes are frozen, so you can't go paddling. So you have to go and cross-country ski if, you know, if you're living in um, deepest, um, uh, deepest Europe in the winter. Um, you, you, know, you go out skiing, you do that cross-country skiing and maybe even do it at the top of the mountains at altitude as well. Yeah, I, remembering back to Greta Weitz and Ingrid Christensen used to spend an awful lot of their winters, didn't they, cross-country skiing and not doing a great deal of running. And um, you, yeah. you look at the look at the skiers, uh, the downhill skiers, spend a lot of time cycling to build the legs. They do, in the summer. And, yeah, and it, and it kind of then you know that whole principle of training or that component of the uh, training of specificity. We have to think of it in a slightly different um, you know perspectives on it. Really, specificity is not about replicating the demands of the event all the time. It's about finding the most effective stimulus to give you the adaptation you're looking for. Um, and that's uh, that requires a little bit of a wider, broader thinking. Well, I also think that, you know, even if you are the most driven, successful elite athlete, variety helps to keep you fresh and young, doesn't it? So if you know that, you know, for the next 20 years, you're just going to be running, um, you know, you might love running now, but eventually you're just going to get a bit tired of it. So if you've got those different stimuluses that will still keep you at the top of your game and help to develop some other parts of your skeletal system and keep that strong and, uh, you know, limit the muscle imbalances, then that, that's got to be a good thing, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, and the other way to look at that question, Simon, is if you think, well, there's a there's a continuum of this. That if 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 this is if this end over here is really really good, I'm adapting, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'm strong, I'm not get picking up injuries, and I'm fit when I need to be at the right time, and I can do my thing that I want to do, achieve my performance. Then the other end of that spectrum is overtrained, stale, burnout, end of career. You know, or, or if, uh, maybe if you're not a pro athlete, it's you know you're just really not enjoying what you're doing, you just cannot get back into it. So that continuum between the two, one of the big things that pushes you that way is monotony. You know, this mm -hmm. idea of doing the same thing over and over without, without change. 
that is a, a real that's an antecedent of the overtraining syndrome. That's well documented and well understood. Must say well understood. It certainly points that way. Um, and like I said before, the other way of that going away is variation. You know, it's, it's finding more ways to achieve this. And it's variation, not just in the stimulus in terms of you could do other, you know, other less specific things, you know, other different modalities, but it's variation in duration and in intensity and in the volatility of your training and the periodization aspects. Mm. Periodization is a, you know, a huge concept in itself, but fundamentally what we're looking for is that if you change stuff, it probably is better than keeping it the same all the way through. Mm. Uh, and that's the key thing. We're using the math tone approach of keeping heart rate um, and working effort quite low with a lot of people. And it's, it's been very successful in the main, but one question that keeps coming up is, well, I can't keep my heart rate. I can't continue to run and keep my heart rate low. It goes too high. So it means I'm walking, but it's supposed to be a running event. And I've used that same example that you have is, look, you're training cardiovascular system. If your heart rate at a given intensity is 130 and you're walking, your heart, your cardiovascular system is benefiting in the way you want it to. I know it's not specific in that you're running, but if we're just developing the cardiovascular system, then you are getting that benefit. You could put a pack on or a weights vest and go walk for 60 minutes on a rough terrain in the mountains and have just as good a workout as you could if you ran 10K around the flats. So there's the variety for you again. And mm. there's the there's the sort of basic stimulus. Now, again, you know, the specific specificity that most people understand is as you get close to your race or your event, then you need to do stuff that's more similar to that race. But you know, in the middle of the winter, it doesn't really matter, does it? We, we need we need to stay fresh and enthusiastic and have variety yeah. in there. Yeah, and and the worst thing you can do is is burn yourself out by pushing too hard too soon. You know, and and doing it, yeah, you know, being impatient about it, and uh, because it's really hard to kind of keep coming back from that. Um, you mm. you need there's a degree of patience. Now that said, you know, I'd also go, I'd also make the statement that you know more is often better. Uh, I'm not saying high volume is always the answer, but if you're an age group athlete, you need to do stuff, you know, and doing stuff and you don't need to worry too much about what you do do. So long as you're doing stuff and accumulating, you know, enough stuff, I would say some very loose training prescription ideas, but you know, it's only when you probably get pushing the limits of your own, you know, capabilities and you're really kind of squeezing the headroom of what your own, your own uh, mm. capable of yourself is when really need to start really thinking about periodizing what you're doing. Um, if you know that you could do more, then just enjoy what you're doing and do as much of it as you can. Uh, and don't get tired, you know, don't get over, don't get overtrained. So we've talked about Stephen Seiler. He does a presentation where he has translated Maslow's hierarchy of needs into Seiler's hierarchy of insurance needs. I don't know if you've seen that, but he has this pyramid. Oh, excellent. Yeah, excellent. And and the bottom part of the pyramid is just volume and frequency. Just train as much as you can. You know, if you've only got 10 hours a week, then maximize those 10 hours a week and just yeah. get the frequency and volume in. And do stuff. And that's do it. Stuff. Just do stuff. Don't worry about how hard it is. Just do stuff. Actually, the harder it is, the less you'll be able to do because you'll need more recovery time. Exactly. Yeah. So um, just do stuff. And then if you want to go to the next level, just add some intensity. But that could be, well, I'm going to sprint to that lamppost. I'm going to I'm going to run hard to the top of that hill. I'm going to sprint every other length in the pool. Just add some intensity, but don't be too structured. And then if you want to go a bit further, be more structured and make sure it's 10% of time. And, and then there's a line then. And he, he says these three have been seen time and again to create huge results 
And actually, if if all you did was focus on these with consistency over several years, most people would get very close to where they wanted to be. And then the icing on the cake, or as he says it, you know, the eating of the cake, you've got to make the cake first and then you've got to eat it. It's the little bits that you talk like periodization, micro periodization, altitude, heat training, you know, um, changes to kit, um, this and that and the other. They're, they're the things that you should be looking last, but when we talk about big levers, these three are the big levers, aren't they? And the other stuff are the little levers, unfortunately, which a lot of people spend too much time obsessing over. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I'd absolutely go and recommend, encourage, um, you know, your your listeners and your viewers to recommend Stephen's work, you know, absolutely wholeheartedly. It's terrific. He's a really good scientist, not just because he's a great scientist, but he's a good communicator of of science uh, and he can put it into some really nice, um, I was going to say layman's terms. It's not even that. He just makes it accessible, makes it engaging, makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. And he's got some amazing examples to underpin the observations and the lessons that he's he's interpreting from them uh, of some truly, truly world-class athletes. Um, Including his daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, some of the stuff there you've got, it's just outstanding. Um yeah, I, I'd say do stuff, do you know, do as much as you can and want to, uh, and enjoy it as you, as you're doing it. And I, you know, someone asked me this the other week, and I and I did say, and part of the answer to this is actually enjoy it and realize that actually not many other people can do that. You know, it's mm. it's, it's a bit of a privilege to be able to uh, exist at a level of function that actually is. It's, we probably to say we athletes will take it for granted. Yeah, that level of function that actually not that many percentage of the human population will be able to well be able to do what you do. No, I'd absolutely agree with that. And and I think because, you know, let's take triathletes as an example. If you exist in the triathlon world, you're already in Italy, in an elite sphere of performance. If if we if yeah. you and I went into any major city in the world and took a hundred random people off the street of ages 25 to 60, the triathletes would always be right at and, and endurance athletes would always be right at the front of that queue, even maybe in a different group um, compared to the average citizen. But we then get hung up on comparing ourselves against that elite group of people. It's like it's like billionaires complaining that they're not rich enough because they don't have as much money as Jeff Bezos <laughs> or Bill Gates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out, just as you were just describing that, you know, kind of go into any city, look at a hundred people everybody will have something about them that's world-class you know mm. it might not be particularly well you know uh, evidenced or, and you don't, might not see it every day but everyone in, including dare i say me and you simon will have something about our physicality that is really really good we might have a load of other stuff that's not very good certainly in my case <laughs> but there'll always be something that you've you've got that is a strength to your physical profile you just might not know it yet mm. well and that does also um, sort of come back to some of your other things about variety and about taking the whole body and the holistic approaches that we are very proud as triathletes of our endurance capabilities, but perhaps our ability to do 10 press-ups or do a full squat or do five chin-ups is, is not quite as good. And maybe, you know, we don't have the mobility to be able to bend down and tie our shoelaces up easily without groaning, but that, that's an equal part of the human function, which perhaps we ought to um, pay attention to as well, not just um, having a, a world-class cardiovascular system. Yeah, um, yeah, you're dead right. Although endurance exercise is, is such a good, you know, any exercise is great. Absolutely, endurance exercise, cardiovascular strain in a good way is is really so so important for lifelong fitness. But so is mobility. So is strength. So is flexibility. 
Mm. So is balance, proprioception, all these other things that probably we'll all take for granted when you're young uh, until they suddenly come and bite you on the the backside at a certain age when you realize, well, that's not quite as good as it would be. So I would absolutely be encouraging. You mentioned things like yoga before. You know, I would encourage it's not for the purposes of trying to be stronger for your event. It's about for the purposes of being more robust as a, you know, as a physical human being. Mm. And I think those, those things are really important. Yeah. You've talked about being of a certain age. I, I feel like certainly chronologically, I'm approaching that certain age now. I've been on this earth for 57 and a half years. You told um, me you were 32. No, I look 32. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, well clearly time. well clearly if i look if i said that and you believed it then i must be doing something right <laughs> but one thing i've noticed is that i can still ride my bike as long as i could when i was you know in my 30s i it's the running actually that um is what most people notice is where they start to dwindle i, I think i can still swim um almost as fast as i was when i was in my 30s um but but i have noticed that I do need to do more mobility work and that's become a, a, a much bigger part of my life now. It's a, it's become a morning habit, but I notice a difference and I notice a difference when I compare myself to my peers, when I see them walking around that they're perhaps stooping a little bit, that they struggle to get out of a low chair a bit easily, that, that some people unfortunately have got the money to buy themselves a Ferrari, but have to get out of it by getting onto their hands and knees, um, which isn't a good look. And, uh, you know that, but they're, but they're still they're still very fit cardiovascularly, but they 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 don't move quite as well as they used to. Yeah, and yeah, that, I think and it's, it's it's important observation. You know, it's a, one of the classic observations of training adaptation and, and athletic performance as you age, is that some of the things that you lose, you also gain in certain other areas as well. Mm. And those gains are often around movement economy and efficiency. You know, that's probably the one thing that would be, you know, when you see the people who've accumulated time doing a modality, cycling, swimming, rowing, running, anywhere where it's that cyclical mod- modality, that they'll become more efficient. They'll become metabolically more efficient, as in it costs less oxygen at the muscle level, but they'll become mechanically more efficient, as in that the way that they move might be more efficient. It might not actually always be the prettiest either. You know, you sometimes see some older athletes who haven't got maybe the prettiest running style, but they're very efficient for it. Mm. And um, and it's a, and that's a real key part of the profile that will change over the years and hopefully improve. Um, but other aspects will will you know will start to diminish as you age and you'll you'll lose aspects. So it's a bit of a you know it's a it's kind of you know you take with one one hand and you get back with the other and you've just got to, you've got to figure out how to play to those strengths. Yeah, I mean, again, strength is another thing, isn't it? That we know, you know, from from the the, the research is is naturally declining from from our maybe our early forties, um, depending on the individual, and then accelerating in decline once you get into your mid fifties. So. You might still have a highly functioning cardiovascular system, but if you don't have the power to mm. get the legs turning around and push the big gears anymore, then then you're not getting the, the most of that. So, um, as a human, as part of human function, I think it's really important to keep that strength up, but it, it also in order to maintain your athletic performance as well. Yeah, and you know, sarcopenia, muscle wasting, is a, is a key you know health risk. Everybody will have it as you get older, but you know, offsetting that and part of that is about actually starting from a higher place. You know, making sure you've got those fundamental mm. strength components in your in your physicality at an earliest point, so you're starting from a higher place. 
Um, and of course, that you know that comes down to this is you know what you're doing now as a younger athlete is investing in your future as as an older individual, as an older athlete, yes, but also just as an older individual. Mm. Uh, and we're all going to live for longer, you know, and and you know in, in years to come. So the the more you can do that right now, the better. Yeah, the physical pension, I call it, investing early, like you would yeah. with your fiscal pension. You know, the earlier you start investing in it, the more you'll be able to reap the rewards. Uh, yeah, that's a, a great phrase. Return. That's a really great phrase. And uh, I like that a lot. And uh, your physical pension. Yeah, bang on. It's trademark, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now. We've had a lot of sports scientists on this, uh, Stephen Siler, Paul Larson, Dan Plews, but I've never ever got into the weeds really of doing a 101 on physiology. And, and one thing that frustrates me a lot when I see other people training at the pool or training on the track is that... Hold on, hold on. I'm just going to get the book ready. Go on. Ask me, ask me a question. Ask me a question. <laughs> is, that the, is that the Jamie Pringle book or is that Wilmore and Costa? No, this, any of your readers actually, this is just, um, this is quite an old edition now. I had this as a, I think as an undergraduate. I might have actually had it early in my teaching career. But McCardle Catch and Catch, ah, yes. one of the most accessible uh, textbooks, pretty thick, um, on exercise physiology and sports science. And I would absolutely, if you if you really want to get something, this is this is one of these books that you, yeah, it's going to cost you a bit of money, and it's probably going to pop a few doors open as well because it's so heavy. Will help you reach up to a high shelf, um, but it's terrific. Absolutely, it just has the ability to go deep into stuff, but also to to look at things from a more um, uh, simple level as well. So, absolutely top level book. And I'm just waiting for your first question, and I will. I will. Uh, if you just give me a moment, I'm ready. <laughs> that that's the book that if you if you enroll on your BSc of um, sport and exercise science, it's probably one of the recommended um, tomes, yeah. isn't it? Buy that first. Yeah, buy it yeah. before you get on that course as well. Yeah. So. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly frustrated at times in, in that I, I see people training and thinking, well, they, they say they're doing this, but they don't really understand physiology. They don't understand what they're doing. But then I thought, well, maybe it's me that doesn't understand it, in which case everything I've done for the last <laughs> 20 years. So I thought, well, now we've got you on. Let's let's do a little 101 physiology. So I've, I've come up with some questions. I think I know the answer to these, but I'd like to hear it from, from the experts. So for an age group endurance athletes, the key aspects to develop a physiology. We've talked about some of them, obviously, some of the peripheral stuff, the strength, the uh, mobility. Um, yep. But if we're talking about the, the cardiovascular system, what, what are we really trying to develop to, to help us be better at triathlon or marathon running or trail running? Okay. So if we, if we think endurance sports as a whole, um, and we'll, we'll park strength and power in that side of things. I know okay. there's, yep. an over, there's an overlap. But if we think endurance sports, Fundamentally, it's about getting oxygen to the muscle, to the mitochondria where it's used. And everything is based around that. So that's our that's our key capacity of, of your engine size is how do we get oxygen from mouth to the muscle where it's going to be used? Uh, and every system that works within that, and we'll, we'll pull those out in a moment, are the key things. So engine size is the key thing. How you can then sustain that engine, the red lining of it, if you like, you know, what, what percentage of your maximum can you sustain for a given duration? If you're a top level marathon runner, you might be able to sustain 85, 86, 87% of your VO2 max for two hours. And world, truly world-class athletes can do that. So that's the second key point, that, that sustainability of that. And then the third key point is something which we just mentioned about that economic efficiency. So you might have a huge engine, you might be able to redline it. But also, if you can be really economical with it, as in you can transfer that cardiovascular uh, and mus muscular conditioning to speed on the road or power at the pedal or you know power on your pull of your of your um, your swim stroke, 
and not waste energy, then you'll go quick. So those are the three key fundamental building blocks of endurance performance. Engine, being able to redline that engine and the muscular conditioning to achieve that and being economical with it. So there are other aspects oh. also around muscular power, you know, for shorter distances or anytime you've got to accelerate or go a little bit harder. So pure anaerobic muscular power and also the muscle mechanics of that. But they're quite small in comparison to those three, those three big things. So getting oxygen to the muscles is an engine size. Is engine size, when we talk about the engine, how much of that is the heart and the cardiac output, the pumping power of the heart? The vast how- majority. Uh, so it's not all about the mitochondria, but mitochondria are critical because the mitochondria are where the action of c- converting energy, usable energy takes place, aren't they? So if we can create yeah. more of them, then we can create more energy. If you've got more at the end point of that chain, yes, you and you can deliver it. But fundamentally, the ox- the muscle will only use as much oxygen as the, the, the heart and the cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory and the, and the circulation you can deliver to it. So you really need to be working further up the chain in terms of endurance adaptations. The, the single biggest thing that we would see that would scale, if you like, with endurance capacity and changes in endurance capacity would be left, ventri- left ventricle size. So that's the chamber of the heart that's pushing the blood out to the muscle, mm. to the muscles. And so that's the bit that we're looking for, the, you know, the real adaptation. It's the bit that will dif- deli- uh, differentiate between um, you're really, really good athlete. So you're not so good to your to someone who, who doesn't have that potential. You've also got to carry that oxygen in the blood, and so the amount of hemoglobin that you've got in your blood running around is important. Um, there's some good data showing that yeah, this is and it was a beautiful research study where they took really, really fit people who'd never done any training, and they said, "Well, why and how are you able to be fitter than these people over here who've done loads of training? You don't do any training, but you're up here." So what is it about you that lets you do that? And one of the key things there was the total volume, a total mass of hemoglobin in the blood um, that those people had that. They also had bigger hearts as well, but they, those people had that higher ability to um, carry oxygen in the blood to the muscle. So those are the key things. You know, they are the real building blocks of endurance capacity. Um, and then there's other bits that we can add onto that. Mitochondria are important. You still got to deliver the oxygen to them. So in order to develop the size of that engine, what's the best type of training? I mean, we, we could, are we, are we going to go back to talking about polarized training here where 90% of the stuff needs to be done in that zone one and zone two? Or well, that's the best type of training. Or is it, or is it, or is it, or is it, or is it a hard question? <laughs> well, or is it, or is it the threshold training, the sort of kind of hard stuff that makes you feel like you've had a good workout because you're breathing hard and you're sweating yeah. and you know you feel tired after it or is it the really hard stuff that makes you feel like you're going to throw up but is is only short bursts sure um the volume of training that you do will be probably the one that will give the biggest adaptation for cardiovascular um cardiovascular remodeling and so on so uh, so long as notwithstanding there will be differences in just the genetic potential of individuals, where they're starting and where they've got the potential to get to, that will be wholly different across the whole variety of people. But in terms of what are you able to do that's going to move, move the dial, um, then sustained and accumulated volume over, the, over the, you know, the days, weeks, months, and years will be the thing that will, will shift that. Mm. Um, and that has an implication then for what to do. Because if it is about accumulating volume, if you're doing loads of high intensity stuff, you're just not going to be able to do as much. And mm. that's probably counterproductive. And also it's probably going to make you quite tired. 
So again, this is where the base of volume of that moderate to low intensity work is actually quite important. Now, not that, that said, the place of the high intensity interval training or sustained threshold tempo work, whatever you want to call it, sweet spot work, absolutely all have a part in this, but they just come with caveats about how to deliver them in a way that is effective, efficient, timely, and also you know, mitigates the risk of some of those things of the higher intensity work. But fundamentally, do more, do volume, accumulate volume over time, and that's how you're going to shift the dial from endurance capability. I had another question there about the various energy systems. Um, of course, there's been a lot of talk about low carb, high fat, and the sort of diet, but also related to the energy system, which is the fat burning energy system, which is that mm -hmm. zone two work. If we're doing endurance exercise, the, the majority, um, I've heard it said that the best endurance athletes are the ones who are the best fat burners and their fat max or their max fractional utilization of fat is just at a higher velocity than most other people. And so that's what they're training really when they're doing these huge volumes of work at um, sort of lower intensities. Yes and no. Um, being able to burn fat is, is a consequence of having well, having a good volume of mitochondria and having efficient, well, you know, well-conditioned mitochondria. But that's the important bit, not the, the fact that you can burn fat. Yes, burning fat is helpful to sustain exercise. Of course, it is. Hmm. But at the sort of intensities and the paces you're dealing with in competitive sport, actually, carbohydrates are a limiting factor. You know, that's the bit why you will <laughs> crack and burn and be sitting on the side of the road and calling home. Um, yeah. because you, have, you haven't got enough carbohydrate coming in. Um, so being able to burn fat is a consequence as an observation of somebody who's well-conditioned at, at the muscle mitochondrial level. Mm. Um, is it a target of training that's helpful to do? Not necessarily. Um, yes, there are, you know, you mentioned about low carbohydrate, uh, training to, to make the body preferentially burn fat. Um, that ooh, our potential that will have changes in how that stimulus switches on different uh, cascades of adaptation, but they also come with uh, caveats and they come with risk. And it, you know, in the bigger picture of putting a training schedule together of day after day and week after week, that kind of stuff has to be very. You got to be very careful with it. You know, it's not. You know, you couldn't rely on that all the time. Absolutely, you couldn't. Mm. Um, so we just got to think a little bit bigger picture than that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's actually a lot of these things we're thinking about are more the consequence rather than the cause. Mm. Let's talk about energy zones a bit. Every coach seems to, and every publication seems to have different training zones. Um, I think Peter Keane came up with seven, didn't he, when he came up with the model for, for uh, British cycling. I think, um, when we were Jack and I were running the talent ID program for British triathlon. They came up with, I think Mark Pierce was involved with this. That we had E2A, um, or E1, E2A, E2B, E3, E4, E5. Um, and yet it seems to me that I'm confused already. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, to, to me, it just seems like, okay, we've got two thresholds. We've got the aerobic threshold, which is the first turn point. And I, again, definitions of um, turn points and where lactate is formed are, are, are far and wide and reaching, aren't they? And I remember yeah. you telling me, look, there's the first turn point when you start to see um, a small increase in lactate. And then you see the second turn point when you see that huge, significant increase. And those two are like aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. So you've above anaerobic threshold, you've got very hard. 
below aerobic threshold, you've got actually comfortable talking pace. And then you've got the bit in the middle, which is, um, you know, some coaches call it the black hole or the sort of no man's land. Why, so why can't we just have three? Why does it need to be more complicated and nuanced than that? For the major- I understand if you're an elite athlete that there are, di- there are subtly different things that are happening. But for the majority of people that are recreational, let's call them recreational athletes, would it be good enough to have three zones? Yes. Most of the time. Yeah. Yes is the answer to that. And, you know, what you're describing there um, with some nice examples is is just how, you know, almost science migrates a little bit. Um, And it migrates to fit the language of the, you know, where it's been used. And if you went, you know, if we went into the rowing world, they'd have a whole, you know, they'd have a wholly different language. Swimming world is different from running, it's different from cycling. Uh, and if you're, if you happen to be Italian, you might have some lovely Italian, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> words to describe that kind of, um, different intensities. Um, but fundamentally, yes, is the answer to your question. You have two key physiological landmarks an aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. And that's quite old school terminology in itself. Um, but the terminology doesn't matter. What we're dealing with is, you know, there are two physiological points here that are really important to know where they are and how the body responds to work below it, above it, and between them. Um, you could argue that the the worth of having a fourth point over here in the higher intensity sort of power at VO2 max, the pace that you could hold for sort of three minutes or so, that's quite important, quite useful to know, certainly mm-hmm. for higher intensity work. But the, that functional threshold power, anaerobic threshold, critical power, maximal lactate steady state, whatever language you want to call it, that's the key business part of the profile. Mm. And exercise above that has different consequences to exercise below that. And then that aerobic threshold, threshold our first threshold exercise below that is, is fundamentally different as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, three kind of two, two landmarks, three zones, possibly a fourth one up there doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. And I would say fit your own language to it, you know, fit your own descriptors. We would often, working with coaches as physiologists, we'd be quite reluctant to put our names, our language on that because you don't want to impose on a coach's training philosophies and, and the way that they would describe it. So we'd just call it, it what it is in its physiological consequences, moderate, heavy, severe. Um, you know, that would be probably as good as you need to do super maximal. I just like the traffic light system. Green is the yeah. easy one. Red's the super hard one, and uh, and amber's the sort of one where you you well, at least in my mind, and maybe that's where you're going to correct me in a moment with the next next talking point is where you should sort of visit at, visit at particular times of the year, but not every week. So yeah. um, that bit in the middle of those two physiological points, um, the threshold zone. Um, some people talk about sweet spot. Or there's a subtle, there's a subtle difference between those two, isn't there? So maybe you could define that for us. But um, it seems to me that, um, particularly when I go to some masters training sessions, that um, often athletes are tr- spending a lot of time in that threshold zone, and therefore they don't have a change of pace. They find it difficult to swim or run. At, at that very easy pace, they almost find it boring or they feel guilty for being in there because they feel like they could go harder and that that would be more beneficial. But when you give them the really hard stuff to do, the VO2 max stuff, the stuff where your heart rate's going to be above 90%, where you're above, you know, five or 10% above your functional threshold, that's the stuff that makes you feel a little queasy if you do a few reps of them. And so, of course, people think that either they're going to come to some harm or it, they're just going to end up throwing up and that's not good either. So they, they throttle back a bit. So, in terms of threshold, is is that something that we should have in our training as a key point all year round, or do we get more benefit from having it in a, a peaking period, six to eight weeks from our key race? 
Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. And I think, um, uh, you know, it depends. That's what we talked about before. But um, it's probably the key question that's occupied the brains of not just coaches and athletes, but scientists as well in this space of of how much is needed in that area, uh, how effective and efficient that can be, what the risks are like you just described, because it can be really quite punchy and potent, but also quite tiring to do work in that yellow area, in that sweet spot area. Um and it, it really does depend because it does depend on fundamentally where you're at as, a, as an individual and how much room you've got to, to, to develop what your strengths and weaknesses are and what you're targeting. Um, but also it just depends on overall state of fatigue, where you are in the, in the season. My take on it, Simon, is that you do need to do work in that space. You, know, you do need to look at that sweet spot um, intensity just below the, the, the functional threshold power. But it has to be incredibly precise in how you both control it and deliver it. And so this is where actually using a power meter, using a heart rate monitor, using speed on your GPS, using pace in the pool actually is really quite important because the precision of your effort will be determining the cost of that kind of work. That work is important because it is really punchy from an adaptative stimulus point of view, but it carries with it cost. And so we need to work on the cost part of the equation and get that managed and that means being precise with your efforts so it's not just too hard and creeps over into another area that actually is really uh, starts to become really far more fatiguing. Uh, so precision is, is just as important as actually doing the work itself. Mm. So you couldn't, for instance, say, well, in the winter, in order to get some of that sweet spot adaptation, yeah. just every time you ride the hills, you're probably going to end up there accidentally anyway, because it's it's in, on some hills it's difficult. You you still need to control that effort to make sure it doesn't go up towards your FTP. You've you've got to be you've you've got to be in that area where it feels comfortably uncomfortable, not impossibly uncomfortable. Yeah, I think so. And that's a good example in the winter. And uh, often you work with um, athletes where I'll give you an example of where athletes going away on a training camp and they're training with their peers. And in some cases, their peers might be a little bit fitter, faster, mm. more powerful with than them. But you're doing group training sessions. I was actually going to give you an example of rowers, you know, where you're maybe a eight guys or girls in a, in, a, in a men's or women's eight. And you might be the weakest link in that boat, but you're keeping up with the rest of the power and the pace of the boat. Um, or you want a training camp, you know, and you're riding your bike um, with people and you're going up that hill and actually it's, you can see that you're gassing it every time you go up a hill, but everybody else is, is around you is actually in control of it. And it's that kind of imprecision by virtue of the fact that the environment around you is pressurizing you to do something like that, that we're just going to be a bit careful with. That said, going out for a ride in the winter with your mates and, and sprinting to the top of the hill well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you just got to know what that means in terms of the consequences of that work because it will be more tiring than holding a sustained average power that's the same by sitting on the indoor bike, for example, when you go out and you're doing work that's up and down and that has different consequences to it. Um, I, I, You know, that kind of sweet spot work is really the backbone of the time trial rider, you know, the 10K half marathon runner where it is all about finding the hour record, you know, cyclist. It's about finding the edge of that capabilities of that threshold and backing away from it. But knowing where that edge is and being completely in control of that area is a real athletic skill. So that's why I think it's important. Just got to be careful with it. Not not so important then for your Ironman triathlete, you don't think? Well, if you think about the average pace of the Ironman, it's going to be below that point. It's going to be closer and below that first threshold. Mm. But there are points in the Ironman where you're pushing you know, into the headwinds up a, up a hill 
uh, where you're going harder in the swim to get onto the feet of somebody. Uh, and then, of course, the, you know, the, the wonders of a marathon in an Ironman, it's just um, just get to the end. And that ha- that capacity, if we if we see, it's a, it's a reasonable assumption to see that if you see an improvement in the individual's functional threshold, their first threshold can probably move with it. They, they tend to be quite movable in that way. It's, it's, or, or put it the other way around, it's, it's actually quite difficult to move them independently. Um, you know, if you're doing efficiently, uh, efficient and, and productive endurance work, probably both will, will, will move. Um, so, yeah, so, but then do, by doing that sweet spot work, is that important for the Ironman athlete? Yes, it is. It is important to have a component of that. But again, you just got to be careful with it and how much you do. Mm. The cost to all of that you, you talked about is, is longer recovery time, oxidative stress yeah. as well. So, damage, you know, greater damage to muscles and more free radicals running around. So, and of course, too much of that, particularly if you're trying to do high volume as well, it can also push you towards maybe not overtraining, but definitely under recovery, particularly in the life of a busy person who has lots of other stresses in their life. Yeah, and there's probably, you know, you, we could go down the biochemistry route of it and, and what's going on there, but there's probably a more simple factor. Actually, it's fueling as well. You know, it's it's costly from a fuel point of view. You're working in an area where you're burning carbohydrate very mm. rapidly. Yeah. Um, and actually, you've got to keep on top of that, either by keeping the juice coming in or just being conscious about how much you're doing. So, you, you, and and that's that could be, that can potentially be why it can be really quite tiring because you're just mm. you're not keeping up with the fueling of it. Mm. Um. Just another question on this then. We, we we sort of, by talking about this, this these three zones and the two zones either side, the red and the green zone, is, is sort of bringing us around in that loop towards the polarised training we talked about at, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I, I know we talked about volume and frequency and a lot of the polarised stuff that Sela did was all about the high-level athletes who were doing 20 to 30 hours a week. And perhaps when you're training that volume, it, it, you just naturally fall into that majority of it at lower level because – even at the higher level, it's still two or three hours a week, and that's a lot. Yes. Um, but then we regularly get people saying, well, I'm only doing eight to 10 hours a week, so if I'm doing 90% of my training in this zone below aerobic threshold, is that going to bring me the same benefits? Now, Siler argues that it does. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, he's, he's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, and we have to think in balance, you know, as well. And you, know, you take it to the example, you might only be doing two to three hours a week of training. Mm. So what proportion of your work do you need to be doing at this intensity, that intensity or that? Um, that's a little bit of a different example. Um, and it might be actually that two to three hours a week, you probably have the capabilities to do more, you know, and so you're not pushing your limits. You're not pushing the headroom and squeezing that. Um, but yeah, Stephen's you know, dead right with that. You know, it is about that 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 balance and accumulating volume of, of lower to moderate intensity work. Um, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, certainly with a world class athlete, even with any trained athlete, that lower to moderate intensity work just because it's below that first threshold doesn't mean it's easy easy in terms mm. of a you know a work output. You actually, you know, a world class athlete might have a first threshold in running of 18, 19 kilometers per hour, mm. 20 kilometers per hour for a top level male marathon runner. And they can go and, you know, I can show you training schedules. You'll have them on um, in your history as well of, of top level athletes where you go, you know, you're going out for an easy ride at 340 watts for four hours. Right. It's a huge energy turnover, it's a huge work turnover. So, in yeah. terms of absolutes, those kind of things are actually really important to have have sight of. Great. There was a great Twitter discussion recently. Alan Cousins and um, Trent Stellingworth. 
Trent as well. And um, talking about that exact point there, that zone two work for somebody who's got an FTP of 400 watts means that riding at 300 watts for two or three hours has a significant energy cost. And it's virtually impossible to um, refuel if you're doing that sort of training every day. So um, you've got to be really careful. It's almost like those guys, if they're going out for two, three, four hours, have got to be in zone one when they're training to keep the energy yeah. cost down. Um, yeah. So it's, again, it's, it's you have to, you have to be really you have to be really nuanced with your prescription based on the actual um, the engine size and the fitness level of your athletes, don't you? Otherwise, again, you, you're going to end up with them in a massive hole. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And then that might be actually where fueling itself is the limiting step fueling whilst you're doing what you're doing and also fueling afterwards to recover, replenish, resynthesize and go again the next day or even later that day. Um, I think, and I think just going back to your, one of the earlier points we had about sort of, you know, where we'll see breakthroughs in training methodology. It's in this, these kind of dynamics where some of the questions will arise, you know, about, should I go out? I'll give you the example. If you're doing 10 hours a week, should you go out and do two, five hour sessions? on the bike for example should you do five two hour sessions should you do 10 one hour sessions or should you do 20 half an hour sessions and those kind of questions are the ones that actually start to stimulate the thinking about well how does the body adapt and mm. um, adapt more efficiently more effectively more productively um, more safely to the stimulus that the, the overall work stimulus might be the same part of the answer is already known that actually sometimes it doesn't quite matter doesn't matter just do it just do stuff you know and it doesn't matter how you do it and that seems to be the case of higher intensity work that actually time spent in the higher intensity domains, interval training, doesn't quite matter how you do it, so long as you do it, so long as you're switching on stuff, you know, and you're switching it on in a in the right way, um, then if so long as you're doing it and accumulating that, that mm. can be, that's as important as, as anything. Yeah, you see. I can imagine lots of listeners are frustrating now going, yeah, but he's not given us a precise figure here. He's not told us how long we need to spend, but do do enough. Don't do too much. <laughs> we, we come back to that whole thing that I'd, I'd written about in my previous blog about find what works for you. You know, you might be the, and, and also I think um, one of my very earliest guests, Brad Cairns, who was Preston triathlete talked about periodization is great. But if we, if we think about where periodization arose from, it was Eastern European methodology. It was generally single sport events. It was generally one or max two peaks a year. And it was with people where they had complete control over what they did with their day. It wasn't meant for people in Westernized society that have got lots of things going on in the day. And sometimes the rhythm of your life doesn't allow for two, five hour sessions, but it might allow for 20 half hour sessions. Yes, You've just got to find that. And, And actually then, there's got to be a mindfulness, which has got nothing at all to do with physiology. It's about listening to your body and, and saying, well, well, actually, A, that's causing arguments at home, so I'm not sleeping very well, so that's not working. B, I'm just not recovering from that, so maybe 12 half-hour sessions is working because it fits into my working life, it fits into my home life, and I'm recovering from it. And also yeah. at certain times of the year, you know, on a nice sunny day, um, in June or a nice sunny week, you, you might find that the weather and all of those other things and your circadian rhythms allows more training. And in the depths of winter, when you feel miserable, it doesn't. But, but, but so there's got to be a mindfulness approach. And I think that comes back to that point you made earlier about athlete self-awareness, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, and I, you know, give you the example, I know some of your listeners might be thinking about, we'll give some more specific things here. Well, I was doing a session on high intensity interval trainings for some students a few weeks ago. Um, and on this very question about, well, how many, you know, what's the best way of doing it? Well, 
if you Google high intensity interval training, one point and put it into publications in medicine, sort of the search engine that uses to go and search all the research uh, journals yeah. out there. There were something like 100,000 research articles on high intensity <laughs> interval training. And so trying to synthesize all of those into what are the key messages here? You know, you can take all these component parts of the duration, the intensity, the volatility, the number of efforts, the total volume, how many times a week, length of recovery in between them. Should you do them in hypoxia? Should you do them <laughs> fed uh, underwater on the, on the moon? You can put all these component parts in there and it just goes on and on and on and on. It gets bigger and bigger. And actually the key message that comes out of it is just do stuff. Because if <laughs> when you do stuff, you switch things on. And actually going back, I think the point that it's important to make from that, specifically what we can take away from it is actually you find that's athletic self-awareness lets us figure out that if I do stuff, what's that consequence of that for tomorrow? Am I going to be on my knees because I've just done a load? I might want to be on my knees because that's fine. I I like putting myself in a box, but um, actually, you know, just having an athletic self-awareness to figure out how these different stimuli work Mm. for you is, is, is really quite important, but fundamentally do stuff, do the, minimum amount of stuff to get the maximum amount of gain and figure out where that equation lies for you and, and at different times of the year where that equation might lie for you. Um, I'm chuckling a lot here, Jamie, because it reminds me of uh, a presentation that was given by your colleague, Kevin Curl also when he came on the Level 3 course. And somebody was saying, well, Kevin, um, you know, spinach, um, d- I've I've read that you should boil spinach if you want to eat it hot, but um, but I also read that that you lose a lot of the nutrient value. So steaming was better. So should I boil spinach or steam spinach? And Kevin, in his forthright way, said, "Well, are you eating much spinach now?" And he said, "No." He said, "Well, just just eat spinach. <laughs> just eat the spinach." <laughs> and that's exactly what you just said. There is just do stuff first and then work it out from there. Oh, I can hear Kevin saying that now. I love that. Yeah, the, one of the most pragmatic realistic intelligent scientist i've ever met in my career top leg yeah i i I relay that story many times because again people get into the weeds about stuff you know i I hope you also asked did he ever did he actually ask the question do you like spinach (laughs) i can't remember yeah well why just eat broccoli then instead of spinach (laughs) just just make sure again you know these things things keep coming up don't they keep it simple get variety you know do different things experiment find what works for you yeah but i'd also point out on that you know when i'm talking about the multitude of scientific research studies that are out there in that area um but actually that's quite important because they all do point potentially to the same sort of pole star and the pole star is that actually doing stuff is is really critical you've got to switch the muscle on how that muscle then responds how the heart responds how the you know the um all the other systems of the body respond is the bit of, that as scientists we, we will try and figure mm. out it's really mm. hard actually um but the the thing of actually well what's what does practice look like what should you do well again going back to our very early point that we said as a triathlete as a cyclist as an athlete you are in quite a high part of percentile of the human population and if you think about the rest of that population group getting them to do stuff is the challenge Mm. that's the challenge behavior change that allows people to incorporate exercise into their daily routine uh, to make it part of their lifestyle and that's a huge challenge the questions we're talking about around how to do stuff yeah how best to do stuff are really quite small in comparison to just getting people to do stuff. And if we can figure that, you know, that one out, that's, that's the bit, um, that's the bit where we, we, we really got to focus our efforts. 
that's that's another podcast uh jamie about public it's health adjusted. isn't it and how, how yeah, to exactly. adjust that let's uh a, a couple more things then if i may um vo2 max um often athletes will talk about yeah well so and so's got a really high vo2 max i i need to move my vo2 max up um I remember Alistair Brownlee saying, I don't actually know what my VO2 max is. You know, I just, <laughs> I just, just train like Malcolm says and do what works. And, uh, you know, so, so what if he's got a bigger VO2 max than me, I'm winning the races. FTP is another one, isn't it? Sometimes I think these are vanity figures. You know, if you've got a huge VO2 max, is, is that really, I know you said, well, if you've got a higher VO2 max, you've probably got a higher uh, anaerobic threshold and everything else. Um, but equally for well, yes, for, and, yes, and no. I mean, this is exactly as a physiologist, you profile the Indian individual to find across those three component parts where the strengths and weaknesses are because they might have. I can show you, Simon, and I could, I won't name names, but I can show you some athletes with VO2 max triathletes who had VO2 max scores in, uh, in the 90s, you know, low 90s, 1991, 92 milliliters per kilogram per minute, which some of your listeners will know is about as good as it gets. You know, mm-hmm. that's you won't see numbers higher than that, uh, certainly not in cycling and running. And they are higher numbers in running than a lot of the Kenyan, Ethiopian, East African distance runners mm. who are running, you know, 26 something minutes for 10K, uh, 29 minutes for some of the women who, are, you know, some f- phenomenal. So it's not the whole story, the VO2 max. It sets the engine size. But the thing with those examples that I could show you is they're incredibly huge engines, very uneconomical with it. Mm. And so you would go, well, if I know that, that you've got the engine here. We don't need to worry about that. Park that. And, you know, you don't need to think of that as a target in your training. Let's figure out why you're uneconomical because, you you know, your running style needs needs work. It might be musculoskeletal and so on and so forth. And, and I could show you, I'm just thinking, I've got another, I'm looking to my bookshelf here. I've got another couple of books I could pull off of examples of people who have broken world records with very modest VO2 max scores. Eric Clayton, I think. Yeah, that's Great example. Yeah, ran a, I think his VO2 max was in the middle of 60s, and he ran a, am I right, I think he ran 208 for the marathon? Probably, probably I'm, I'm not that um, up to quick. date on his stats, um, but I remember them saying he, yeah. he, he had a huge, he had a massive ability to run at close, at sustained pace at close to his threshold, didn't he? So it was hugely yeah. economical. And that's, I think you shared the data that Andy Jones had uh, um created about Paula Radcliffe over the years that um, over the seven years when she was dominant, the uh, VO2 max and uh, didn't increase at all. It was still but, good. It was still but, uh, good, but the economy was the thing that improved. And you can one. see, you can see over the years, her economy. And I think that I've seen similar data for people might say and, that. Andy has uh, nicely re- revisited that work with a different population group, basically right. the sub to our population group. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Kipchoge and, that, and his peers. And he's shown exactly the same things that you, you mm-hmm. these guys are, are phenomenal athletes. Um, their VO2 max scores are great, you know, but they're not they're not exceptional. Um, mm-hmm. What they are able to do is hold a very high percentage of their maximum through the duration of the race, mm-hmm. be very economical with it, and also preserve that economy as they go through the race. So they're you know they're running technique, the mechanics of it are, are being preserved. But also the way the body is is holding on to the efficiency of um, metabolism as well as being preserved, and so it's those kind of things where you go, we've got the component parts of endurance performance here, and now we can see how they are able to be delivered to to achieve that performance. It also gives you a bit of insight of where the next breakthroughs of in performance will come from, mm-hmm. because none in those particular examples, sub two hour marathon runners none of the component parts were were maxed out to say that that's as high as it would ever go. What, what it was, 
you've got an individual who's got all these major components all really, really very good. And it's that com combination of them that you say that's world-class, that's sub two hour, that you can go and um, you can you know, do some really uh, impressive things with. So a couple more points on the uh, VO2 max then. My understanding from when I first did my fitness instructors course, and then I was reading uh, Wilmore and Costell, another great physiology book, was that um, out comes the latest edition. That's no, the one I get the on that one. Yeah, that's the one I've got. That's my own undergraduate showing how old I am. That's my own undergraduate. So, uh, well, I don't know what the date is on that, but it's quite old. <laughs> so, once you've got your VO2 max to a certain level, uh, it's, it's difficult to push it up for most people much higher. So, I could see some people saying, well, why do we do VO2 max training? If, we, if we're not developing, if we're not pushing our VO2 max up higher, why do we do it? Now, my understanding yeah. from that is that we're doing, we're building our economy. Yeah, if you've ever tried to do swimming at VO2 max pace or running, it feels incredibly untidy and ragged. But when you go back to paces below that, you suddenly feel so much more in control. So if you did more of that training at that higher level, yes, you you build some physiological ability to deal with lactic acid and, and recover and all of that other stuff, but you you gain you make some huge gains in your economy of moving fast um efficiently. Yeah, uh, that is actually the truth, I think, Simon. And, um, you know, economy of, of, of exercise in, in the well-trained athlete, the economy of, of exercise, your efficiency, is really quite nicely targeted by higher intensity work. And it's probably the main thing that will change, not your VO2 max, not your cardiovascular capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, I think also, just going back to the earlier point, that it's a consequence of migration of language. You're using, in this case, uh, an exercise intensity, power, velocity, or, or speed at VO2 max, to describe a type of effort or intensity uh, and a type of session. And it gets, you know, tagged with that kind of that line. This is a VO2 max session or VO2 max efforts. And it doesn't work like that. You know, no. just that's it, just because it's at that intensity doesn't mean it actually is targeting that particular thing. We know, you know, if I got you to do, you know, 10 hours a week of low intensity training, well put, thought, well thought out intensity training, that might be as effective in shifting the dial on your VO2 max as anything else. Mm. And so we've got to be a bit careful with just how we ascribe language and stuff like that. And I don't think that's particularly, dare I say, I don't think that's particularly helpful by saying this is a VO2 max session. Of course, that's what you'll see in some literatures, what you'll see in popular literature as well. Um, but it doesn't quite work like that. Yeah, it's. I do. I do see that sort of um, among athletes and coaches are the same. Well, you know, for it to be true VO two max, you need to have equal rest intervals or whatever. But maybe you can't cope with those equal rest intervals. Maybe the quality of the work deteriorates. I, I know certainly as I get yeah. older, I need longer. I, I can do the work, but I need much longer to recover than I would have done twenty years ago. Yeah. Well, actually, that said, all all I've just said there, actually, there were, you know, there were some good observations. Um, again, there's another book I think I've got up here. This. This one is another classic, Astrand and Rodal's textbook of work physiology. And Astrand was a real, um, mm. a real pioneer of exercise physiology. And one of the things he was saying was to improve cardiovascular output and to improve that VO2 max score, then you need to be accumulating time with VO2 and heart rate and uh, ventilation at high levels and accumulate time during the session. Mm. Uh, how much time, you know, is it 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 20 minutes? How much time and how you do that is obviously dependent on um, the structure of the session, the work rest ratios, the durations mm. overall. Mm. Um, and I think time spent at VO2 max, as in time spent at 
probably above 95% of VO2 max with heart rate high and cardiac output high is part of the picture. Um, it is part of the interval training picture. Uh, getting a handle on that and how to actually structure your sessions to achieve that is, is, is quite tricky as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so there's, it'll always be a source of debate in that, in that area. Training prescription always will be because it's just such a multitude of ways of doing it. Finally then, Jamie, and, and this is maybe a selfish question because I'm in this category, but um, we've talked about all of these theories around how to improve your physiology, but as athletes are getting older, um, do we need to be thinking about different things? I mentioned that it, it takes longer for me to recover now. I know Joe Friel covered this in his book and he talked about Ned Overend says, I can, you know, I'm 60 now, I can still do all the workouts that I used to do when I was 30, but I just have to have more days in between them. Yeah. in order to uh, in order to recover so um are there things that we perhaps need to do less of are there things we need to do more of what are the considerations for the older endurance athlete mm, that's a really good question uh, all those points you've raised from those people i think absolutely you know hold, hold true uh, as good observation they're all good observations good reflections um do you need to do more stuff? Uh, you need to keep doing stuff. You know, you certainly need to keep from a, we talked about it earlier about musculoskeletal health uh, as being really important. And then that's not just the training stimulus you're putting in to keep strong and fit and mobile and agile and, and uh, flexible and so on. But it's also the lifestyle, you know, it's, it's, it's aspects around um, your diet, new nutrition, which I know people are far better placed to talk about that than I would. Um, other things you shouldn't do, um, not necessarily, but there might be things that just you won't get much return from as you get older. You know, doing really high intensity work where you're really focusing on anaerobic power developments, you just might not get as much back from that than you would compared to when you were, say, in your 20s or even in your teenage years. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's just you've got to be realistic with your expectations of that kind of work. Um, it's a bit like the go right to the other end of the age spectrum. You know the the um, the debate or the concepts around using um, strength and resistance training for children. It, if you do it properly, it, it's fine. It's absolutely good. It could be great. Um, it's just you might not get the gains in that mm. age group that you would expect to see in a teenage or a young adult age group. Mm. Um, but it's just about whether it's appropriate or not, more than anything, and um, whether it's going to be beneficial. Um, I would be I would be encouraging people as they're getting older to play to their strengths. You know, enjoy, find out what you you're good at and enjoy doing, and actually make sure you, you don't neglect those. You know, um, it's one thing to work on weaknesses, and that's always a good approach from a you know from a training perspective to work on the things you're not so good at. But actually, as you get older, I'd, I'd say play to your strengths and really you know work on the things you are good at and and enjoy them. Yeah, I feel like now as I mean I'm as I said I'm 57 now. I feel like I'm playing a game of last man standing, you know, back, back to that elite, back, back to that elite group of people, the, the endurance athletes that are here compared to the, the sort of the, you know, that we're, we're standing on top of the iceberg. The rest of the rest of society is, is below us on, on that, um, on that structure. So making sure that you, if you are going to get slower, you're just doing that slower than everybody else that's in your group, yes. you know, so, so still getting stuff done is a result when you get older. And if you get into your sixties and, you know, wow, the guys that I see that are doing, I am man that are in the seventies, you know, you've already won, you've already won the game, yeah. haven't you? If you're still able Absolutely. to get on the start line, you're already a winner. And you could probably yeah. say that about people in the sixties, because most people by then have, have thrown the towel in. I, I, you know, I think, I think, 
you know that I used to work at Yorkshire Cricket as the fitness coach there. And all most of those professional athletes are conditioned to think that their careers will be over in their mid to late 30s. Maybe now they're, they're believing that they could play until their late 30s because of just advances in, in science and, and training methods. But um, I was in my 40s then and they were saying, like, are you not retired yet from doing triathlon warding? I'm like, well, why would I? Well, we have to retire. Why don't you? But, but so, and I think that's, that's inevitability that's in most people's mindsets is it's talked about in professional athletes. So that applies to them. So at some point in my mid forties, I'm going to have to hang up my running shoes, put my bike away and or stop competing. Well, why would you? Yeah. I like your example you gave before about, you know, you can do the same things, but it just takes longer to recover from. And, and that's, you know, that's important. You get, again, it's athletic self-awareness and figuring out mm. what you can and can't do. And, and when you do do something, what, what it takes out of you and, and how you manage it. Um, yeah. And I think that's, you know, you could take that to the other end of the extreme, Simon, is you look at when athletes make that transition from being amateur athletes to professional athletes and they're paid to do what they do. They don't necessarily, that at that transition point, they don't necessarily do anything different in terms of the training. It's just they've probably got a lot more time to recover and they've probably mm. got a lot more, you know, um, time to rest. They don't have the lifestyle pressures, the work pressures uh, and other things. And so, and that will mediate the adaptation. It will mediate the gains that you'll find. And that applies in later life, you know, when you've got everything else around you, all those other aspects of, of, of your life and your work, uh, they will mediate how you adapt and how you manage training. So work on those, you know, take the opportunity to work on those as you get older and make sure that they are, you know, you, you're, you're managing the life outside of your, um, of pushing the pedals around or putting the, the shoes on or pulling the trunks on. Jamie, that's a great point to finish. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and experience and everything else with us. Um, it's been a blast and and been lovely to catch up again. Great, my pleasure, Simon. Thank you for inviting me. It's been uh, it's been really good to chat. Take care, Jamie. We'll catch up again soon. I'm sure. Cheers. Now, see you soon. Thank you to Jamie for joining me on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. You can find the links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Now, if you don't mind, I have two actions for you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please can you hop onto iTunes and leave a rating and more importantly, a review. Alternatively, or as well as, please can you go onto your favorite social media platform and share with as many friends as possible. Right, that's all for this week. We'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.